Episode 179, Becky Margiata, author of the book, Impact with Integrity, Repairing the World Without Breaking Yourself. My favorite one, the one that really I continue to draw upon the lessons and help many, many other social entrepreneurs, social change leaders not make the mistakes I made, was... I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Becky, her company, her book, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 179. And now on with the show. Thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Becky Margiota. She is the author of the number one bestselling book titled Impact with Integrity, Repairing the World Without Breaking Yourself. She's also co-founder and owner of the Billions Institute, and she's the host of the Unleashing Social Change podcast. So you can learn more about the Billions Institute at billionsinstitute.com. Their mission is to help leaders scale solutions to the world's biggest problems at record-breaking speeds. Uh, Becky is also a West Point graduate and served for nine years as an Army officer. So Becky, thank you first off for your service and, and thanks for being here. How are you? Mark, thank you for having me. And I'm doing really well this morning. Thank you. Great. Um, there's a lot we can talk about here today, but you know, as we as we typically do, as you know, you know, we'll we'll dive into the the main question at hand, you know, from different aspects of your career, of different things that you've done. Um, what would you say is your favorite mistake? As all of your guests have said, there are many to choose from. And my favorite one, the one that really um, I continue to draw upon the lessons and help many, many other social entrepreneurs, social change leaders not make the mistakes I made was thinking I'd get an A for effort. And another way to say that would be not managing to outcomes, but just managing to effort essentially. And uh, they're very different things. And I really two glaring stories where I made this, this mistake and, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's night and day, the difference of managing to outcome versus getting an, an A for effort. So, in, you know, within that general theme, what, what can you tell us at least one of the examples, one of the stories where, you know, that sort of illustrated and, and, and how did you realize that you were doing that? How did you discover the mistake? Yeah. So, uh, the backstory on that was uh, in the early thousands, two thousands. I worked for an organization called Community Solutions, and my job was to get street homelessness down by eighty-seven percent in, or by by two thirds in three years. We got it down by eighty-seven percent in four years, and then for the next two years after that, cities all over the country wanted our help in how do we adapt what you had figured out in Times Square of New York City, and uh, after. Two years of helping other cities do it, we decided to be more ambitious. And so Roseanne Haggerty, my boss, and I um, came up and crafted this thing called the 100,000 Homes Campaign. And the idea was to help way more cities than we had already helped to the point where they would be able to 
directly off the streets, uh, you know, by name, move people directly into housing, resolve their homelessness. And we launched this campaign in 2009. And my my mentor, co-founder of the Billions Institute, Joe McCannon, his, his first question to us, because he was our consultant on this project, was, how are you going to make sure you celebrate along the way? And celebration is so important. So I said, you know what? When the 10,000th person moves into housing, I'm going to get a tattoo with the last zero missing. And I am not a tattoo person, but I got you. I, For those who are watching on YouTube, there we go. 10,000 <laughs> or, well, actually it was a one zero zero comma zero zero. Yes. So really yes. leaving that space. I mean, the comma was a commitment, right? Without the comma, yes. a bunch, right? No, I had so many people come up to me and just sort of, you know, shriek that I had gotten, you know, one of those ill-fated tattoos that, it, and I had this big joke of like, you know, I'm, I'm I've got skin in the game. I'm really committed, <laughs> and you know, if I don't, if we don't succeed in this, then I'll just have a permanent testament to failure you know, on my body, but I always thought we'd get to the hundred thousand, you know, because everything just kind of always works out somehow. And And I was really busy. Yeah. Well, and to that point, that sounds very outcomes driven. You had an outcome. Yeah, totally. Uh, Like on my body. Right. Right. (laughs) Someone was like, that's some good job security, Becky, get a tattoo. (laughs) And so I was all in, I was all committed, but I got so busy just doing the work. And, uh, but I was the team leader. I was, you know, it was, it was my responsibility and it was about a year and a half into the three-year campaign where I, we had enough resources to have someone who could do good quality assurance. And, and, and Paul Howard pulled me aside one day and he's like, Becky, I got some bad news for you. And I was like, I was like, oh no, what is it? And he said, well, right now we're on track to be the 30,000 homes campaign. And I was like, well, I have this tattoo. <laughs> it's, it's harder to turn the one into a three. It's, it would not work. It yeah. would not work. Yeah. And, and, uh, and w- it was just one of those moments where I was like, if I'm honest with myself, we reconfigured, we had, we needed another year. We completely refigured our operations as a team together. We problem solved. We were able to sort it out. But the truth of the matter is, is up until that point, everybody who moved into housing, I was happy and cheering and glad and excited and very, I was working my face off. Um, But I hadn't really looked like occasionally I would look and I'd be like, how do you project these things? I don't know. Um, But my boss accurately um, referred to those, the pre 30,000 homes campaign days as clowns on the bus because we were, we were having a great time. We were working really hard. You know, we had great camaraderie, great morale. People say it's the best team they've ever been on. You know, it's, it was a wonderful thing, but once we, once we got serious about managing the outcomes, Mm -hmm. everything changed. It was still had great morale, all that stuff, but it, it, it forced us to be creative and um, resilient and adaptive in ways. If we hadn't been managing to those outcomes, mm-hmm. we would have had maybe one tenth yeah. the impact in the world. Yeah, I mean that—that's a fascinating scenario. They're picking that outcome. I mean, it sounds like what I hear you saying is you lost track of the outcome. Yeah, Focusing I should have been looking at that. Effort. I should have been looking at that outcome. But, 
every day, if not every week. Were, were, you know? were, you, were you wearing long sleeve shirts or something? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was all in emotionally and spiritually and everything. And um, it's it's not my particular area of genius or skill to do more of the quantitative stuff. Um, it was, you know, someone else's that when we hired him, he did that, you know, and no, no problem, but I should have, I, 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 what we really teach people now is at the very worst once a month, but ideally at least once a week, you're looking at your key outcome measures and you're, you're recalibrating because reality shifts all the time. You learn new things all the time. So it's not that you um, change your goal. You change your strategy and your tactics so that you can hit that goal. Um, so it was, it was, it's my favorite mistake because I learned so much and I, I know in my being that like the gestalt, the feeling of the difference of what it's like to be on a team that single-mindedly, we were always driven towards the goal, but is managing to the goal. Mm-hmm. You, you can yeah, have the goal right. in your hearts, which is different from having the goal in your operations and management. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, well, so then first off, uh, so I've got a lot of follow-up questions. So I would love, love to ask, but when, when did you get that last zero? Hold the tattoo up again, if you would, oh, yeah. for those who are watching and those who are listening, I'll narrate, there's a red zero mm-hmm. at the end there where now it does say 100,000 homes. Yeah. I got that in June of 2014. One, 11 months behind schedule. But yeah. you know what? It, when you're doing something really bold and ambitious and you have a quantifiable time-bound goal that no one thinks you're really going to hit anyways, if you need one more year, that's really not a problem. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but you got to hit it eventually. So we yeah. we hit it one year late or one month early from our revised timeline. Yeah. And I went and got that tattoo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 11 months late is, is yeah, you're right. Better Better than never. And you know, I, I can think of other, other two two quick stories come to mind. Um, I, I remember uh, related to the work that I do as a consultant. I had a chance to go visit a hospital. There was a team there that was focused on um, process improvement, continuous improvement, mm-hmm. and they've been doing this for about five years. And I asked, I wasn't trying to put anyone on the spot. It wasn't in front of a large group of people, thankfully. But I asked, so you know, with all of this effort, how how would you gauge the outcomes? What impact have you had on a hospital and different things you could measure. And, and that person paused. And then I was sorry, I'd asked the question. The answer was, we've, we've been focusing on building capabilities, mm-hmm. which I mean, fine. But my <laughs> concern is that if some point the CEO asks, so what have you accomplished? And that's the answer. They might not get a sixth year. Exactly. If they weren't focusing both on what they were doing and outcomes and keeping that in balance. I think that's a very, um, that's a mistake people make a lot. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so the best compliment when you're working on a project like that, a quality improvement project is when the boss comes to you and says, this is going so great. What do you want to do next? And you've already got the pitch of like, well, this is how we can capitalize this on this. And, 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 um, certainly building capacity is important, but that's not going to get you the, what do you want to do next? Right. It might not earn you the right. So um, when you talk about learning lessons from this, and, and I do want to come back to the story of what you did here a little bit, but thinking of the Billions Institute and things mm-hmm. that you can do to help other, um, I, I love the phrase, social entrepreneurs who are trying to solve really important, really um, big challenges, is that coaching that you give them? Is it better to set 
what might seem like uh, an audacious goal, at least to to rally, try to rally everybody behind? 100%. So we, we teach social change leaders, social entrepreneurs, our model for unleashing, and which is we define success as orchestrating the loss of control of thousands of people moving in the desired direction. And so it's it's an art and a science and it's a quan. And uh, the key that brings it to life is a, a bold, quantifiable, time-bound aim. And we, in our trainings, we teach people how to get it just right. The Cliff Notes version of that is any system can withstand an expansion of five to 10 times over the same period of time. So um, if we did, if we helped a thousand people move off the streets into housing last year, then in the same time period in the next year, if we're going to scale, we should aim for between 5,000 and 10,000. And I've trained thousands of people on how to set good aims that, that are this fine tuned balance between overwhelming people and freaking them out, you know, like, like, and, and, um, underwhelming, right. You gotta, you, you don't, it's gotta be enough to get out of bed in the morning. And, and people really get this wrong. The aim setting piece, they're either really grandiose way in the future, you know, uh, like we're going to do something like really amazing by 2030. You're like, who's still going to be here? Uh, or they, they, it's the quality improvement itis where they're like, we're going to do something really incremental so we don't fail. Um, and nobody cares. And so, um, we try to help people find a balance between those two. Well, and if I remember right, you said the goal for reducing homelessness was by two thirds was the goal that was set. So this is where I learned, I should have learned that lesson the other time. So sometimes we have to learn lessons twice. So (laughs) listen, I had gotten, I had gotten dumped by the person I was dating and my puppy died. And I was like, just a depressed and all sad. And I was like, I have to do something I feel zero ambivalence about. I was actually a stockbroker at the time. And I found my way to community solutions. Roseanne Haggerty took pity on me. And for whatever reason, thought a military veteran would be a suitable leader to reduce street homelessness by two thirds in three years in Times Square. I knew nothing about homelessness, but my job was to get street homelessness down by two thirds in three years in, in Times Square, the highest density of street homelessness in New York City at the time. But and, and it sounds like though you, were, they were identifying a leader, right? That's, so leadership matters a lot, even if you don't. I mean, you, you you can learn the the area that you're working in. Maybe not to be a world class expert, but learn enough to lead effectively. I think so. I think that's ultimately Roseanne thought she wanted a logistician because there were 30 other organizations that were doing something to help the homeless people in that area, or the people experiencing homelessness, I should say. But uh, it wasn't resulting in any outcome changes. So she thought she wanted a logistician, which I was not, but she was like, well, you were military, that'll do. Uh, but I was like, but you got a leader. And I figured out the other stuff pretty fast. And I had beginner's mind. So I was like, it doesn't seem like what y'all are doing is working. I wasn't popular, but I didn't care. Sure. Yeah. And um, again, it's the same story. And I hope I don't make this mistake again. I mean, it's just like, mm-hmm. I, you know, you always ask your guests like, okay, what did you learn differently? And I'm like, well, I'm just going to do it again. <laughs> but when I was in Times Square, um, Roseanne was like, Becky, you get street homelessness down by two thirds in three years. Let me know what you need, you know? And we got to work and we started moving people directly from the streets into housing, which was unheard of at the time. The only other person who had been doing this was Dr. Samson Barrison. So we just, we, we thought we were like doing heroes work. So we were like high-fiving each other every day, again, working our faces off, but we only went out and measured our progress once a year. 
there's a, a point in time homeless count mandated by housing and urban development. You'd go out in, in, in January. It's always like the third week of January when it's really cold out, not so that you can get an undercount. People get cynical about this. It's because most people probably are inside that night. So it's kind of easier to count the number of people who are outside. And so, but you get the totality of everybody, but there's usually less people sleeping outside in January. So you're not overwhelmed. Right. And so, um, we only we only measured outcomes once a year. She hired me to get it down by two thirds in three years. I should have been sampling that at least once a month, you know. Yeah. And and, and at the time when we would be counting, which is between midnight and four a.m. So we were just housing people left and right, but we weren't making a dent in who was actually sleeping outside. It between midnight and four a.m. So once so so we worked our faces off for a year, and homelessness went up seventeen percent. And Roseanne could have been like, she knew I was working really hard. She could have been like, hey, A for effort, Becky. But she was like, um, I hired you to get straight homelessness down by two thirds of three years. And again, that's where all of the major innovations and insights came from was really my boss holding me accountable to outcomes and then me and my team figuring it out. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like, I mean, I'm guessing in, in a place like New York City more so than Los Angeles. I, I've lived in Los Angeles recently. Mm-hmm. I bet there's more seasonality. In mm-hmm. the number of um, people sleeping on the streets as the year goes on, so as as that's, I could see why you would do that kind of apples to apples, big apple, <laughs> big apples. Uh-huh. apples uh, I love it. Uh, comparison. Good um, one. It was a mistake to make a corny joke in the middle of talking about <laughs> something seriously. But January to January, like you could, see, you you wouldn't be claiming success because the numbers change because they always change. Maybe as it gets warmer. You know, LA has such consistent weather. You probably don't yes. have um, that factor. But I mean, it, it it sounds like back to the goal setting, though, um, that two thirds was audacious enough to be challenging and inspiring, where a goal of incrementalism, 5% improvement. I mean, okay, yeah. that's something, but it might not spark the creativity. And then, you know, uh, as you said, you know, that two thirds goal led to actually 87% performance. Um, do, do you think it would have been disheartening or a mistake to say our goal is zero homelessness in five years? Well, uh, given that we didn't have any baseline data at that point, we had com- comps in the United Kingdom, which was a sort of federally funded top down, lots more formal power. We were bottom up grassroots, good looks and personality, right? Which you can see how far that got me. So, uh, because we didn't have any baseline data, going to going for zero at that point um, m- might have been kind of pushed it too far. But because the hundred thousand homes campaign did succeed, everybody went to Roseanne and my former colleagues. I went off and formed the Billions Institute, but Roseanne and all my former teammates and said, "What do you want to do next?" And what they wanted to do next was say, instead of housing with working with cities out lots and lots of people and running the numbers up, we'd actually like to work with a smaller subset of communities that want to go all the way to zero. And so, and in fact, you know what, they just got th- that group, the community solutions just got the MacArthur 100 million and change award. So the MacArthur foundation puts out a hundred million dollar grant for like a, a, a big idea that can actually solve a problem mm-hmm. all the way. Mm-hmm. So they've got tons of wind in their sails, but all mm-hmm. of that is building upon the work from times square 
and then other cities, and then the 100,000 Homes campaign, and then the Built for Zero campaign, and now this. Now they're going to get, they, it's, it's these, these iterations of scale, and you build upon the last thing you did, but you keep push, you keep the, you keep the pedal to the metal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think zero is an interesting goal. Like I, uh, I have a, a ball cap here um, that says zero Ooh. written oh. out. I should have been wearing it maybe, but um, this is from a group called the Patient Safety Movement Foundation, a nonprofit. And yeah. they are audacious in setting a goal of zero patient harm. Wow. And that's a currently a big problem and it's it's hard to measure or estimate. But there are organizations like you know in, in the domain I'm in the most in healthcare that will set a target of, of zero harm to staff and providers, mm-hmm. zero harm to patients, but recognizing we're not gonna get there immediately. We might not ever get all the way there, there, but if we're finding 50% improvement a year, that's worth celebrating and builds momentum to keep going. Absolutely. So for that zero goal maybe is the right goal. Um and and but you know I think this comes back down to leadership again. Can you articulate it in a way that doesn't make people roll their eyes and say well that's impossible versus working together with them to figure it out as you were saying you had to figure it out with the 100,000 homes project. Yeah, I think if it if if people dismiss it as impossible, you you, you don't have that win in your sales. I love zero stuff. And, and by the way, my, my mentor, my co-founder is, is, is uh, Joe McCannon mm-hmm. from the Institute of Healthcare Improvement. And so oh, okay. he worked mm-hmm. really hard on the 100,000 lives campaign, which then led to the 5 million incidents of harm campaign. And, um, and from what I understand about quality improvement, if you say we're going to get to zero and the way we're going to get there is we're going to half our way to perfection every single year. You know, we're going to keep on improving upon our improvement and it's going to be a parabola, you know, we're going to, we're going to approach, but maybe not hit zero, but if we keep, we're going to get it to a really acceptable level. uh, I think that's really exciting, you know, and and, uh, charismatic. Well, that's a funny connection. um, You know, to, like I said, IHI hundred thousand lives campaign. They're another great nonprofit education. That's, that's um, trying to help drive um, change that way. Um, I, I saw a thing in the news the other day, uh, city of Hoboken, New Jersey has had mm-hmm. a campaign of zero deaths from pedestrian car accidents. And I think they've been at zero for four straight years now. And oh, wow. it, it, I think, you know, it takes leadership kind of putting that stake in the ground. Mm-hmm. And then it, this was on NPR. Um, the, the brilliant thing that, that was, you know, they said all the different solutions, you know, none of them were really that expensive. It was just more a matter of doing things. Like, mm-hmm. And not looking for the, the the single magical fix, which I think we tend to do, looking for the solution, like you know, yeah. it's technology or yes. something really innovative. Lots of little, just sort of grinded out improvements that that led to that great impact. I, I think you're hitting on something that I, I feel is so important. I'm going to change the way I teach large scale change. So I used to teach it. What's your solution? So for me, it would be, we have a way of identifying people at high risk for dying on the streets and we have a way of expediting them through the Rube Goldberg machine that is the housing placement, not processed in the United States. So like, let me spread that, right? And um, people fall in love with their solution. Yeah. And risk, yeah. And and kind of lose sight of the problem they're trying to solve sometimes or whatever. So um, now right after that, I would teach them aim setting. But 
but this next time I teach, I'm teaching in um, the UK for three weeks in September. The next time I teach this, I'm going to teach aims first. Like what's the impact you want to make in the world? What's the, what's the change? And then, okay, what are like the three to five possible solutions mm-hmm. you might spread and scale? Right. And I, I, we'll see how that goes. But I think that you and I are like drinking the same Kool-Aid here that we, yeah. we can't get too attached to our solutions because reality changes all the time. Sure. We learn yeah. new things. Yeah. Well, we're, we're speaking very similar language. You know, I, when IHI teaches their model for improvement, it does start with setting an aim statement. But as I've had the chance to try to coach people, I think we have to be careful that we're not stating the solution or the the aim is to implement such and such. Well, wait a minute. I think a better yes. statement is like you said, we aim to reduce patient falls by 85%. And we're let's do that figure out lots of ways. Yeah. Let's figure out the causes and let's figure out things that we can go and test. And see, yes. it might not be the solution. It may be this package of different solutions that get you there. And when you talk it out with people, like I'm sure, you know, you work with your clients, a lot of a majority of my work right now is with the National Health Service in England. And so they, they all have improvement projects you know, that they've just, that they've got something cool. Um, but it's very rare for people to commit to outcomes. So I had a, a group coming through and they had this really wonderful something or another that reduced macular degeneration. And they wanted to do some incremental change sharing improvement thing. And I was like, what's your, what's talk to me? What's your thing in plain language? Talk to me like I'm an eighth grader. And they're like, well, we basically prevent blindness. And I was like, dude, (laughs) instead of being like, we're going to spread our blah, 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 jargony, whatever thing in, in some incremental percentage thing, why don't you say, we're going to prevent blindness for 2000 people this summer. You know what I mean? And, and um, they're like, Oh, I like that better. And I'm like, I just said the same thing you were saying, (laughs) but there is, they get it right. Everyone gets it, but sometimes we need to help them shift, get out of their day to day Mm -hmm. and, and, Mm -hmm. and shift to these outcomes a little bit more uh, persuasively. Yeah. Or to have the clarity in the simplicity. Like I saw a thing, you know, meme that was going around recently. It was something like, if you can't describe your job in three words or less, you have a, <laughs> you have a BS job, right? Yeah. So may, I, I might run the risk then of having this label of like, I have a BS job, but uh-huh. you know, maybe if you can't describe your aim in a way that, um, you know, some you know, random person in the supermarket could understand, maybe you're overcomplicating things. Well, and boy, do we do that, right? Yeah. Yeah. A, a mistake uh, to avoid or a mistake that a lot of us have made. Um, so Becky, talking about, you know, speaking of big numbers, um, I want to learn a little bit, you know, I want, I want us to hear what is the Billions Institute? Why did you co-found it? And then the, yeah. you like big round numbers. So why, <laughs> why billion or billions? What's that? What's that yeah, about? we could have called it like lots of zeros. Um, so Joe had already quarterbacked and led the 100,000 Lives campaign for IHI and Don Berwick. When when Roseanne and I met with Joe and Don Berwick to learn how to do a campaign with lots of zeros after it, IHI seconded Joe to consult and coach me how to do large-scale change. Then he like set me on my training wheels, off to go. And he went and worked um, for the Obama administration for several years, rolling out Obamacare, big, large-scale change within the government. But when the 100,000 Homes campaign was over and he was finishing up his rollout Obamacare gig at HHS, um, 
we touched base again. We had been friends all those years. And I was like, hey, I really want to help people learn how to do large scale change, but I want to work with climate change, education, racial justice, all, all these different human trafficking. Let's stop gun violence. You know, let's let's take what we learned and help people in other things that we really, really care about do large scale change better. And Joe was like, I'm totally in. And and we literally the next day I called him back and I was like, You want to go into business together? And he was like, heck yeah. So we founded the Billions Institute together and we hung out a shingle. Um, a lot of people wanted us to consult for them, but I, my heart is really with training. And um, so um, we, we, we were very busy consulting and, uh, and then we kind of carved out enough time to, to start doing this, our large scale change, our, our large scale trade. What am I saying? Our large scale change training. And um, it's just grown from there. It's and so uh, that's primarily what I do now is help people design and lead large scale change. Yeah. So people who are trying to do some sort of big audacious initiative in in their city, in their state, in their country, they're trying to figure out how to structure it, how to get started, or maybe how to course correct. If they're not yes. seeing progress. They they find you, or you find them, or both. Yeah, a lot of word of mouth, and and we're there. We, this is all we do. And so, you know, this is our niche. This is so I can talk, listen to someone for 15, 20 minutes and be like, okay, here's what you're doing wrong. <laughs> you know, like I just, you know, and, and so it's, it's easy, you know, cause it's, we know the, we know the bones, we know the parts and, and um, yeah. How's, how's, how's that received though? When you say, here's what you're doing wrong. <laughs> hopefully they're open to the input or maybe you're just saying that very loosely. I don't or, really I, say it that way. I think okay. I say, I would say something like, um, first I would do reflective listening and say, okay, do I understand your situation correctly? And this, mm-hmm. and do mm-hmm. I understand your pain point? This is the part yeah. that's hurting. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, are you, are you open? Are you available for another way of seeing this? Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean? are you for a different possibility for how this might look, you know, or a different way that you might get what you really want? And then if they say yes, that I'm like, okay, well, what if, you know, and I'll put out a possibility. And so yeah. that's usually how that goes. Yeah. 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 I mean, you have to hope, hope people are open to it. You know, sometimes there's a risk when, you know, p- people are looking for, for, they say they're looking for input or ideas. Sometimes they're really looking for validation. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, the way, the way you're doing it is fine. Keep going. It's just it'll take more time or just do it a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. I think what I do is I think I'm, I'm if nothing, I'm very authentic. And so I, I think I loved your interview with your professor from MIT who got yeah. did the, the airline authenticity, you know. Uh, Arnie Barnett. I'll drop some truth bombs on folks, you know what I mean? And, but I do it gently. And then I think folks really appreciate that. But, um, but I think it's also really important to validate the effort, right? Like I think nobody calls me because they really want to make their large scale change project work and they're just phoning it in. Like they're, they're really sincerely working hard and wanting to succeed. So it is important to validate the effort, I think, and then say, here's how you could redirect that effort and have different outcomes maybe worth a try maybe yeah i mean there's always things that are going well that you want to keep doing more of even and then there are things that you could change i mean that's uh, i think it's true if you're coming into a, a hospital or to any organization trying to understand the current state it's usually not all bad oh no there's so much to build upon yeah 
And, 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 you know, I would say at least half of the time, and this is what's in what I write about in my book, half the time when someone calls me, they already know their truth. They just haven't given themselves permission to acknowledge it even to themselves, much less somebody else. You know what I mean? Like they know that something's not working. They know that, you know, there's a, like a relationship that's a little bit off or a resource that's missing, but someone else has it. Or, you know what I mean? Like there's just like something that they, and it's like, they do need, or I don't know if they need it, but one of the ways I feel like I'm, I'm really helpful to people is helping them access what is true for them that they weren't giving themselves permission to say out loud. Mm. And then it's like, okay, well now we just got to figure out what to do about this. Right. Like, but at least we know. And people, people are smart. People's intuition, people's sense of what's going on is generally pretty good. Yeah. And and one of my previous guests, this is going back a ways. um, How did she put it? I think she said her mistake was relying too much on outside experts instead of finding the answer with them. Mm-hmm. And maybe, the, you know, there's a balance there where you're right. A good coach isn't going to be as direct and saying, well, here's what you need to do. Just go do it. That can trigger defensiveness. And I think that's a, a perfect yeah. normal human response. So this kind yeah. of like, this co-creation. Oh, totally. Or, or, you know, drawing it out and maybe even asking questions like, well, if you think here, here's an approach that you think would work, how would you test that? You know, there's a startup. Yes. What assumptions would have to be true? There's different things you could try to maybe bring someone to the the the, the confidence level where they can go try that idea. Amen. I think it's all about helping people find their inner truth and then helping them see opportunities or openings that maybe weren't as clear to them before. I have a great story about how people don't want the answer. <laughs> In our trainings, we do, you know, they, like you're a consultant, you know, they have like, like little, like tricky things to do with tennis balls or Mr. Potato Head or whatever. And teams have to learn something and do something to succeed at the challenge. So, you know, we, we, we incorporate that into our trainings to help for a specific purpose, not for quality improvement, but for spread and scale. It's an adaptation of one of those consultancy type of things. So as the last time I did it, I was in Wales, National Health Service, room of a hundred people, teams of eight, utter chaos, tennis balls everywhere. And the, and I am observing so that we can use these as teaching points, right? J- I just set people loose to let the chaos begin. And a woman comes running up to the front of the room and she's like, can I use the microphone? Can I use the microphone? And I'm like, yeah, right? Because I'm always like, this is the most exciting part of the training because yeah, I don't know right. what is going to happen, right? Yeah. And I'm like, sure. And she goes up to the microphone and she's like, tap, 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 tap. And she's like, everybody, 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 listen, the right way to do it is as the right and way to she, do it is what? She gave away the answer. Oh, of, oh, oh, oh she's, okay. She's like oh, how to solve the yeah, puzzle right. for yeah. everybody. Because uh, she had done it before, okay? <laughs> and I'm watching it. And I'm like, well, this is interesting. You yeah. know? And I'm like, is this going to just ruin the whole thing? And now everybody's no. going to have the right answer. And we're just going to be a boring exercise. People booed. Yeah. People were like, we don't want to know the right answer from you. <laughs> we want to struggle. Yeah. It was the most fascinating thing. So it just validates your point that people don't want to be given the answer. They want to find their answer within, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that that is that. that, Yeah. That's a great story. It's a surprising Mm -hmm. uh, outcome uh, from that. Um, So, so Becky, I did want to ask a little bit, you know, back to um, your education, your training, your experience in, in, in the U S army and the special forces. I mean, are, 
there, what, what are the most transferable leadership comments? There are many books that have been written by mm-hmm. retired generals and, and, and people from the military and you know, lessons from the special forces. And you know, there's kind of a appealing popular um, mm-hmm. notion out there. Right. But if you, if you were to sort of try to cut through all of it, are, are there, from your experience, what would you mm-hmm. say are certain key lessons of the approach to, let's say, developing leaders or the approach to leading that we should most want to emulate or learn from? Mm, That's a great question. One quick clarification was um, I served in special operations and people who were actually in special forces would take umbrage at a woman Mm. being in special forces. Although women can be in special forces. But women can be in special forces now. But back when I was in, um, I was in special operations command. Ah. But, um, you know, it's so simple. And it's so basic, but it's so everything, which is uh, mission first, troops always, which is outcomes. Get the job done first and take care of your people because they're the ones who are going to get the job done. And 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 when I was a cadet at West Point, um, every time once a week, you'd go into the mess hall, 4000 people eating at lunch at once. And there'd be a, a handout of Lieutenant X and it would describe some ethical dilemma or some scenario you might face when you're a lieutenant. And it would be the lunch table conversation um, about what would you do in this scenario. And the right answer to every Lieutenant X conundrum was mission first, <laughs> troops always. And and um, because they're competing, sometimes there's trade-offs in those. Mm. But I think an enduring commitment to mission first, troops always is so transferable to the civilian sector. Mm. And, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, as as I told you in my story, sometimes I take my eye off the ball because I'm, you know, I'm busy, I'm working, I'm productive, yeah. but I'm I'm um yeah, it's it's it is definitely a balance. Yeah, a, a powerful notion there. Just to to repeat it back, um, mission first, troops always. That's um, yeah, that's powerful. And you know, you mentioned outcomes focus. Um, I think probably the only book that I've read from one of the retired generals um, was uh, Stanley McChrystal. Very popular. Oh, yeah. Team of Teams. Of course. Yeah. And I will do my best to paraphrase a concept, but then I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. This idea that post 9-11, different different enemy than the military maybe had been training for in decades past, Mm -hmm. that this notion of commander's intent was so powerful of not the play-by-play mm-hmm. of do this, then do that, then do that, but expressing the commander's intent and then letting people kind of figure out some of the how, maybe within some parameters. Can you tell us mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. Oh my God, I'm so excited you brought that up. Okay, so first of all, when I went into Special Operations Command, first woman to ever command a company in Special Operations Command, this, the 112th Signal Battalion, Special Operations Airborne, my boss was Colonel Howie Cohen and the person who had been his biggest mentor, who had most shaped him, and he was the person who most shaped me, was General McChrystal when they were in the Ranger Regiment together. And so I think of myself as coming from the McChrystal lineage <laughs> in yeah. my time of service. Oh, great. So, so in a way, indirectly, through Howie Cohen, who I'm still dear friends with, um, I was shaped by General McChrystal's things. This whole, the team of teams and the commander's intent What's wonderful, this is another thing that's actually brilliant about the military is there's a commander's intent, which is here's the end state. I don't, we know once the bullets start flying, this is going to go out the window, but we've got to have a plan just because, you know, it's better than not having, but, but even when the plan goes out the window, this is where, this is where you need to be. And it's 
everything in the army is written to an eighth grade literacy level and everything in the army is done in case your boss dies. Like, like they're literally taking into recognition your boss could die. So you need to know what to do. And then you're a boss. You could die. Your people need to know what to do. And, and that's where so much of the agility, I think of, of, you know, of the, the military intentionally, but that whole concept of commander's intent is, is a hundred percent resonant with our model for unleashing in the civilian world. You know, it's like, here's where we're going. We're going to course correct until we get there. We're going to commit to this end state that like, how could we even commit to this? Because we can't control that. Right. But we're going to keep on improving and vectoring in until we get there. And we're going to learn as we go. Uh, and we're going to unleash all these other people we've never met um, to do things that really matter to them. And it's they're, they're very complementary ideas mm-hmm. um, in, in, in really different contexts. Mm-hmm. And that's how you end up having a hope of impacting billions of people or having billions of dollars of, of, of impact is not commanding every specific thing to do, but following a model more like that. Commanders. Yeah. Intent. Yeah, or exactly. 100%. Model, for un- model for unleashing. We're going to go look that up and encourage yeah. people to check that out. They can learn more about that. Uh, look for that phrase on the Billions Institute website. We've got stuff there. Yep. And and Joe and I are going to write that book together next. Yeah. We will write a book on the model for unleashing. Oh, mm-hmm. well, that'd be great. So um, previous book, and, and I apologize for not budgeting time well enough to ask you more about it, but I do want to mention Becky's book, Impact with Integrity. Repairing the World Without Breaking Yourself, um, to go and check that out. And then uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you can check out um, the Unleashing Social Change podcast. I encourage people um, to go find that. So again, our guest has been uh, Becky Margiata. Um, Becky, this has been um, wow, such a good conversation. Thank you for for sharing. Thank you for um, indulging me on kind of sharing a couple stories back. Um, yeah, likewise. Things. But um, any, any, and this is, I don't, this, this feels like a lazy open-ended question to end with, but do you have any, <laughs> do you have any final thoughts that you'd want to share? <laughs> I think, um, if, if you're, I think almost everybody, I don't know that I've met anybody that doesn't have something that they care about that some way they want to contribute to making the world a better place. Like I've never met anybody who's like, I just want to make money and take care of myself and heck with everyone else. Like I've, everyone has, it might be the sea turtles. It might be, you know, something really far away or the atmosphere. Everyone's got something they care about. And I, my, my hope is that we can consistently take action from, from our essence, from our most creative selves and be able to really connect authentically with others so that we can make just kind of chip away at making the world a better place together and 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 so many people um kind of get burnt out doing that even as volunteers they're like that's not fun you know because of drama or whatever and so my, my wish for the world would be that whatever it is that any listener is they care about that they're able to make a difference in that in a way that supports their own aliveness and well-being too, that it's not an either or it's a both and. 
Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And I think we'll we'll end on that note. So Becky, um, thank you again. Thank you for the work that you've done um, and the impact that you've had. And, and, and thank you so much for being a guest and sharing some of your stories, your reflections, great advice. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Mark. Lovely to be on your show. Well, thanks again to Becky Margiata for a great conversation today. Thanks to her for the work that she does. To learn more about her and for links and more, look in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake 179. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.